Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. From the land where you wear a parka over your Halloween costume. Hey, guys, <laughs> it's election shock therapy. Uh, we're back. <laughs> And we're cold. <laughs> What's your favorite Halloween costume ever, Bramson? Um, so my two-year-old this um, Halloween wore this cute little brown outfit with antlers, and she was the king's deer, and she was very cute. And now she keeps asking um, for me to show her pictures of herself on my computer. I don't know if it's my favorite ever, but it's awfully cute. It's, so that's I'm going that's pretty adorable. Cookum, do you have a uh, – um, favorite Halloween costume? The favorite one that I got to witness uh, in recent memory um, was this is when we were living in Bloomington and there's these groups of kids with their parents that would like, you know, go throughout our apartment complexes. Oh, yes. And the best one um, was this person who was wearing some sort of like inflatable T-Rex costume. So there's this giant that. T-Rex that yes. was like waddling down the street. It was yes. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of great. So the short little stubby arms. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. It's was, it was good. <laughs> Sam, what's your favorite Halloween costume? Either that you've worn or that you've observed from somebody else. Well, it's definitely not one that I wore because <laughs> I, I had pretty dumb Halloween costumes as a kid mm. uh, to my memory. Um, I don't I, – I, I saw a T-Rex last year and yeah. it's probably worth just picking twice because mm-hmm. – although at the same time you look at it and think, well, that's clearly a kid whose parents just – Spent a lot of money on a Halloween right, costume. Right, it would right. have been better. Oh, I know what my favorite one is. So when I was growing up, there was a kid in my <laughs> class whose parents owned the like party store. You know, the mm, store where you yeah, would get yeah. Mylar balloons right. and stuff like sure. that. Right. And they would do like the, I don't know, they weren't like singing telegrams, but they would like show up. And like when you turned 40 and they would show up in a gorilla costume and yeah. give you balloons, right? So they had a bunch yeah. of costumes. And he and this is probably like in fifth grade, so it's about the right height. He came dressed in a perfect elf costume, like A L F, like the Oh elf. Yes. Gordon Shumway from <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah from yeah. Melmac. Yeah. Not elf. And it was like so he came to school in that and it was like elf was just in the classroom. That's kind of great. It was pretty great. Wow. That was kind of great. It would have been even better if he like just had a cat with him. That's right. Or half a cat. Half. Oh. Oh. No. Well, the alpha eight cats. Let's I understand. Just, <laughs> but that, got, that got dark quick. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's been a while since we podcasted, friends. And um, just as a reminder uh, to our, our listeners, um, we're trying really hard as political scientists not to just be topical. But we're trying to say, as we look back and survey a couple weeks' worth of news, mm-hmm. what are some things as political scientists we can say meaningfully about what's been transpiring in the news? Is there is there added light we can add uh, mm-hmm. to some of these news stories? And so with that in mind, I want to ask to start with, what are you paying attention to the most both inside and outside the impeachment process? So this is a two-part question. So let's start with the impeachment side of things, and we'll mm-hmm. go outside impeachment. So within the, the litany of news stories about the impeachment investigation uh, into President Trump, what news story from the last couple of weeks do you think is really significant that you're paying attention to? I guess the problem is there are so many different news mm-hmm. stories constantly. Spoiled for choice. Yeah. It's... 
it's it's honestly been hard to stay on top of all of the different witnesses yeah. that are giving testimony yeah. behind closed doors. So it's hard to pinpoint just one. Um, I would be interested. I'm in the thing. One of the things I'm going to be looking for in the next few weeks is um, if there's going to be any cracks in um, support for President Trump in the House of Representatives, mm, um, because yeah. right now. Um, you have um, um, House Minority Leader uh, McCarthy, um, the Republican, is maintained pretty steadfast uh, support for President Trump along right. with sort of the Freedom Caucus. And right. I'm going to be curious mm-hmm. to see mm-hmm. if there's any sort of developments in the hearings, the public hearings that are going to be um, beginning tomorrow, actually. So that, that's going to be Wednesday, um, uh, November 13th. See if there's going to be any, um, any cracks in that support. Yeah. Um, because I think ultimately if there's going to be um, if you get some Republicans peeling off in the House of Representatives, that vastly increases the likelihood that some Republicans in the Senate will bail. But if Republicans remain voting as a block against impeachment whenever that does come to a vote, um, if they remain strong in the House, in their opposition to impeachment, mm-hmm. I think you're going to see the same thing in the Senate whenever it gets, gets kicked to the Senate for um, for acquittal. Or Now, Matt, based on what we know yeah. about um, – electoral politics, what kinds of things might cause or might begin to cause defections amongst Republicans in the House? Well, I mean, so a couple of things, one on the substantive side, one on the procedural side. So I think um, up to this point, uh, a lot of the some of the reason why Republicans have remained pretty staunch in their support for Trump um, is the way that the Democrats in the House have conducted the investigations right. um, and they have conducted them and we can get into the weeds in this, but they've conducted them in a way um, that give Republicans lots of ammunition to point out that this process has been inherently unfair mm. um, and and they can use that as a sort of a shield to hide behind um, yeah. in their defense of Trump. Um, so if, Republi- if, if Democrats are now perceived to be opening up the public hearings and conducting them in a way that is perceived as fair, they lose mm-hmm. some of that shield. On the substantive aspect, if there's, you know, some some pretty convincing um, evidence that is corroborated independently by multiple witnesses um, that indeed Trump did directly order the withholding of funds to the Ukraine um, um, unless Ukraine actually began conducting a couple of certain investigations, which you talk about those if. You get that kind of evidence and it comes out and it's pretty unassailable. Mm. That could cause a few Republicans to bail. Jump mm. ship. Um, but again, we'll have to see how that goes. Yeah. And kind of related to that, I mean, I think one of the things I've been interested in is just this whole discussion of among Republicans apparently behind closed doors of like, should we admit he basically did do this, but then say it's not impeachable, right? Right. And so that, right. that kind of discussion of like maybe, I think yeah. It's, I think it's yes. one of the closed doors. I've heard that actually um, said aloud. Yeah. And it's right. being said, I mean, it's on, it's on news headlines. So it's not exactly, you know, a deep, dark secret, right? I mean, like they're clearly having this this discussion, right? And and I think that's, that, that's kind of, the, to me, the X factor is like they have to become persuaded that this is impeachable. And I'm not sure if that's really about any kind of new evidence coming out as much as um, being convinced that the public is persuaded. Exactly. Right? I, I mean, right. I think, I you right. know, so I think really to me what it comes down to is if if those hearings are conducted in such a way that the public starts um, shifting toward impeachment, right? And we saw some move that way, but we need to see much more, I think. Um, then you could see Republicans jumping. But right now we're at like 49, 45, according to 538, with, you know, in favor of impeachment versus opposed. That is not going to have Republicans jumping ship. 
And Trump's approval ratings haven't really shifted nope. in either direction since no. this process no. has kicked yeah. off, right? No, and his, and his approval is still very low. I mean, like, is you know, for, especially for a president in this kind of economy, it's around 41, 42 percent. But still, you know, that's not low enough, I think, for Republicans to bail on him. Right. Yeah, I think to that point, if his approval ratings would drop overnight 10 points, yep. you'd start to see moderate Republicans in the House right. start to bail. Yep. And that's just not happening. Or vulnerable Republicans. Right. Right. And the problem for Democrats is there, there's been so much in the news about impeachment already um, and really talks of impeachment for two mm-hmm. years now right. um, that uh, the public can only absorb so much information. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, there's not that many people who are open to truly changing their minds. Most right. people have made up their minds at this point or are simply tired of it. Mm-hmm. We saw two Democrats vote against uh, the um, impeachment investigation, including Minnesota's own Colin Peterson, who's right. in a very vulnerable district, mm-hmm. um, likely to lose to a Republican um, in the uh, in the 2020s, um, or at least I would say as a very significant challenge from the Republican side. Yes. It's, it's a red yeah. district. It, it'll go Republican once Colin Peterson retires, for right. sure, I think. But um, is there a chance that we start to see more leakage on the Democratic side? Could we see a few more Democrats back away from impeachment if they think that they're going to suffer electorally? Maybe I'm I'm skeptical that the numbers are strong enough the other way either for them to back away. I mean, because again, they have to fear their base, right. and their base is very gung ho on impeachment. So I I doubt it. I mean, with, again, with a few exceptions like Colin Peterson, who's clearly decided he's going to do what he's going to do. Um, I don't think he cares that deeply. He's in a very red district. I mean, this is probably makes sense for him. Um, but it's also, you know, I, I don't think Peterson just cares that much. And he says, you know, this isn't going to go anywhere. He doesn't see the Senate convicting right. without bipartisan no. support, which he's he's right about. Um, so, you know, I think he's decided he doesn't really care that much. But for most of them, I mean, like the, the fear is you'll get primaried and you'll get yeah. beaten. And we're right on the cusp of the primaries yeah. too, right? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're looking at two yeah. months out from the first yeah. primaries. It's just it is too soon. and. Yeah. Public might have short memories, uh, but not not that not short. That short. Yeah. Um, and and really, if you look at the the figures for support for and actually impeaching and removing the president, um, it is very high um, mm-hmm. across Democrats. We're talking about eighty eighty five percent. And you know, there's going to be some variations on yep. district and state level, but that's pretty high. Um, so, I think you're going to be hard pressed to um, avoid um, voting yes um, for impeachment mm-hmm. in the House. So can I give my Machiavelli of the Week award to oh, um, yes. uh, to Jim Jordan of Ohio? Um, Jim Jordan has been one of Trump's staunchest supporters uh, in the House and has been virulently opposed to this impeachment process. <laughs> he was one of the leaders of the group of um, House Republicans who stormed the SCIF, the, um, this secure facility where the Democrats were conducting um, – <laughs> You're laughing because he was invited to the party he stormed into. Nice. Um, I wish, I hope that someday I can also crash a party that I was invited to. Um, it's kind of like Cor- it's kind of like Cory Booker's Spartacus moment. Exactly. During exactly. Right. right. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm going to violate the rules. Oh wait. <laughs> oh wait. Yeah. But um, Jordan and and some of the Senate or some of the House Republicans are doing something that I think is very smart. Mm-hmm. which is they are politicizing uh, this impeachment investigation. And you may say, wait a minute more. Um, is, an inquiry a pl- is an impeachment a political process anyway? Mm-hmm. And the answer is yes. yes. But most Americans don't see it that way. Most right. Americans see right. it as a um, quasi-legal hearing. Yep. And by trying to introduce or mm-hmm. trying to request that Hunter Biden be brought before the committee to testify right. by demanding that the whistleblower, whose identity is 
mostly protected, although a few news outlets have started to announce it, um, by asking for that person to come and testify mm-hmm. as well. They're trying to make the inquiry itself as partisan as possible. And that's not necessarily because they think that that's going to exonerate Trump. I think they're pretty much ready to announce, yes, he did offer this quid pro quo. We just don't think it's impeachable. But rather to try to make it look as partisan as possible rather than this sort of sober investigation of of abuse Mm -hmm. of power. Yep. And – essentially kind of taint the entire process. And I think that is going to be a really effective strategy Mm -hmm. um, for undermining the credibility of the impeachment investigation. Right. Um, All right. What are you looking at? We're not going to spend our whole time on impeachment. Uh, Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you want to. No, I Um, really don't. What else uh, are you paying attention to in American politics outside of the impeachment story? What else should we be following more of? Well, I'm I'm intrigued by this whole like um, all of a sudden there's other Democrats who are thinking of jumping into the presidential race, and this is intriguing at a couple of levels. Do you have an and, announcement to make? Um, I do not. Okay. I am not running for president. I'm happy just being the president that I am right now, and uh, I will be happy to give up that office next year, <laughs> so <laughs> prior to any American elections. Um, but. I'm intrigued by the fact that, I mean, like, you have this huge field of Democrats that's been slowly slowly winnowing, but still there's quite a lot of them. And now all of a sudden you have Michael Bloomberg thinking about getting in, Deval Patrick, um, and Hillary Clinton's people are rattling their sabers again for whatever reasons, right? Um, and so – Does Hillary so, Clinton still have people? She does. Mark, Mark Penn is clearly one of the people. Um, he keeps talking about her getting in. I'm just like, why are we – Still discussing this anyway, but it's it's just kind of fascinating when you have that many people. You're this late in um, that you still have this sort of contemplation of should we have somebody else mm-hmm. jumping in? Um, and so I'm not I'm not quite sure what to make of that. Other than there are some people at least in the Democratic Party hierarchy who are nervous about the kind of Warren Sanders um, vibrancy and then Joe Biden's kind of struggles. Um, so, yeah, that, I'm just kind of keeping an eye on that. Intrigued. How is it possible that the Democrats have um, basically a starting offense and defense of a professional football team right, running right. for president and they can't find somebody who they can mutually agree is sort of uh, fills the electability uh, yeah. um, quotient? Yeah, it's, it's just intriguing because, I mean, the people who are kind of the obvious picks in that regard are not polling very well. And so everyone's kind of nervous about that. And then the people who are polling well, um, the party's all kind of nervous about in one way or another. So, um, I mean, because you have, you know, you have three, basically three old people, um, two of whom are very far to the left, um, Warren and Sanders, and then Biden's right. another old guy. And then you have super young Pete Buttigieg, who's ever, only ever been a mayor of a city of a couple hundred thousand. Is this why Klobuchar is getting a little bit of a bump? Like, are there, is it party insiders who are promoting her maybe, as, a, maybe. as a relatively moderate, yeah. more mainstream Democratic yeah. candidate who isn't Pete Buttigieg and isn't right. Joe Biden? I mean, it, it seems like they would be comfortable if you had, say, you know, Kamala Harris or Cory Booker or Amy Klobuchar doing well. You, I get the sense maybe they wouldn't be as gung-ho for, like, let's have Bloomberg or Patrick jump in. Um, but because all those people are pulling relatively low – um, you know, they're, they're at least thinking about it. Now, do we have any precedence, I'm asking both of you, for candidates getting into a primary session late and making any kind of inroads? Not really in the modern no, age, right? I mean... Not any serious candidates. I mean, we've had people get in late and they usually flame out. I mean, right. you can think about people right. like, 
you know, Wesley Clark and Fred Thompson, right? Oh, Fred <laughs> was the one I was thinking of. <laughs> uh, which our colleague Fred Van Geest has a Fred 08 sticker in there because that yes. works really well for him. He's but, the only um, one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there weren't a lot. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, they just usually, you know, it's – if you're going to succeed, you need to get in and build the organization. Um, and this is why Warren and Buttigieg are rising is they've done the hard work of building an organization, mm-hmm. hiring staffers in Iowa, and you can't just ramp that up at a moment's notice. Yeah, and you have to you have to actually get on you know the ballots in these states, yeah. and you have yeah. to you know make an appearance on the debate stage, which right. yeah. has certain prerequisites right. as well. So people right. like Bloomberg are going to be hard pressed, especially on the right. on the latter. Well, Bloomberg has money, so I mean he might right. be able to buy some of this, but well, which is also a liability, it in, is a liability. The, in the Democratic right. primary. Right? What if you right. just bought a polling firm and you're like, guess what? <laughs> <laughs> just make up numbers. I got forty four percent approval. Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> Let me, since we're getting into the subject of polls here and qualifying for the debates, is it too early to watch the polls? And can you guys talk a little bit about what kinds of polls are being published and what they're good for? So there's um, obviously a lot of national level polls uh, floating around out there, and they provide an an interesting picture of of the race, but they're not super useful this far out. So if you look at at sort of um, national level polls um, that show of like the of the nominees that of, of the people who eventually become the nominees for their party. You look at polls basically from the 40s up to 2012. Mm-hmm. You look at the polls, um, and generally those polls have not been accurate. They've been wildly off. Now we've seen an improvement mm-hmm. um, in the recent elections in 2012 and 2016. Okay. Um, this is maybe partly due to improvements in polling, but really more to do to the increase of uh, party polarization, which okay. makes mm-hmm. um, which makes predicting elections and how people vote um, a lot easier, right? Um, and so, so you know, you shouldn't put too much stock in particular right. polls, especially national-level polls, because um, we don't have a national popular vote for president. What right. do we have? We have right. electoral college, right? Yep. And so it's actually more useful to look at particular states right. um, who are going to play an important role in the electoral college math. And, and actually, there's been a recent um, poll that's been released by uh, The Upshot, which is out of The New York Times mm-hmm. and Siena College. And they conducted a series of polls in several battleground states. So this is Michigan, Pennsylvania, right. Florida, Wisconsin, uh, Arizona, um, and North Carolina. And they have these hypothetical matchups between Trump and various um, presidential, right. uh, Democratic presidential candidates. So we're looking right. at Warren, Sanders, um, and Biden. And basically, on average, across these six mm-hmm. states, um, Biden is ahead by two, Sanders is tied up with Trump, and Warren is behind by two. And all of these are within the margin of error, right? right? Um, and so this is a, this shows a much tighter race within these mm-hmm. battleground states than you have, than is evidence in the national polls right. where Trump is trailing all of these Democratic presidential um, wannabe candidates right. um, by, uh, by even double digits in some mm-hmm. cases. And so, so this shows us that the race could still, at this point, be right. quite competitive in the electoral college. So, yep. so it's important to look not just at national level polls, but look at these um, polls within particular states. And the same in the the primaries. I, I would say national polls are they're not useless, but they're they're not all that helpful either. Because the reality is, what matters is the early states that are going to go right. I mean, so what matters is what happens in Iowa, what happens in New Hampshire, because 
it is absolutely the case that voters in later states are going to be looking to what happens in those early states, right? And so um, if you win Iowa, you win New Hampshire, right? I, then, you know, voters in um, those other states are going to start thinking about, okay, does the candidate I was liking before, are they doing well? Are they doing poorly? Who has momentum, right? And what are my real options in terms of people right. who are actually competing? So I don't so, want to waste my vote. Right. So, I mean, like Joe Biden, for example, has been polling very well in South Carolina, although he was down a little bit in the recent one. Um, but I, I think, you know, he shouldn't be too confident in South Carolina as some sort of firewall for him, um, because which is how his campaign has been thinking. Right. If he loses New Hampshire and Iowa, I'm doubtful he actually can pull off South Carolina. Maybe he can because of his support in the African-American community. Or maybe they look and say, OK, who are the two or three real viable candidates that are left? Who do we prefer? Do we want Warren? Do we want Buttigieg? Do we want Sanders or whoever, you know, whoever gets out of there? Right. So I think, you know, you have to think about like it's, you know, what's happening in Iowa, New Hampshire, that's important. Um, anything after that is really going to be shaped a lot by what happens before. I'm an IR guy. And is this an IR thing or do you guys talk about the drunkard search? <laughs> you should probably talk about this for us. Okay. Um, the drunkard search is, is this, you know, this old joke. This um, guy comes out of a bar. He sees this drunk underneath a streetlight looking yep. at the ground. And he says, can I help you? And the guy says, I'm looking for my keys. And he says, where'd you drop them? And he points over to this dark alley because I dropped them over there. Yeah. Yeah. Why are yeah. you looking underneath a streetlight? Because <laughs> this is where the light is. <laughs> Um, and I think that applies to how we do polling in the United States. Uh, we do uh, lots of national polling because mm -hmm. if you can get 5,000 respondents, um, you can put out a pretty statistically reliable yep. national poll. Right, right. Doing what the upshot did uh, in those battleground states is much more expensive because mm -hmm. yep. you're basically yep. trying to get that same level of polling turnout at a state level. Right. And you're do so basically you're not, you're not just doing one poll, you're doing seven. Right. And that the, the cost gets cost prohibitive. There's yep. not a lot of mm -hmm. yep. national outlets who want to do state-level polling. Right. So oftentimes we're relying on state-level publications. Think like the Detroit Free Press to right. be polling in Michigan. But yep. the Free Press doesn't have a lot of money for polling either. No. So we're getting this situation where the most accurate, most useful information is the state-level data. It's also the one we're least likely to get because of cost. Right. And so we get what we rely on is looking underneath the streetlight. Yeah. And we look at these national polls. And I think that's a problem. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. and you, then, will, you will see an uptick in polling when we get closer yeah. to the date. Um, Absolutely. When, when there's more of a payoff for spending that additional yeah. money um, to sort of zoom in to particular yeah. states and even districts. Mm -hmm. So one more, mm -hmm. one more question on polling for you all. Um, we know that polling can influence voters, as, as mm -hmm. Andy talked about. Uh, could there be some kind of a cascade effect? Let's say hypothetically um, – Joe Biden drops out of the race. I think this is very unlikely, but let's right. say Joe Biden drops out. That clearly opens up a, a lane for someone else to present themselves as the moderate Democrat. And Joe Biden's votes go to somebody, right? Right. right. But that also could happen with more down ticket kinds mm -hmm. of kinds of folks. Let's say Cory Booker drops out and Kamala Harris drops right. out. If, which is more if, likely. <laughs> if, 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 which is a lot more likely. And if, if their potential supporters then go to Pete Buttigieg, which I also think is unlikely, but let's just mm -hmm. assume that's the mm -hmm. case, that gives Buttigieg a good three or four points bump in the polls, which itself might right. might convince other right. uh, uh, candidates to also drop out. So yep. could, could we see sort of a bunch of candidates drop out in relatively short succession and – we could go from a, rel a field of relative parity to a field where we really do have a couple of front runners or maybe one front runner. 
Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's possible. I think what's interesting right now is like when you look at who's best positioned to do well early, it's Warren, right? And mm-hmm. and she's also making a lot of party elites nervous, right? And so mm-hmm. the question is like, can they find a way to you know mobilize against her? I mean, and you have only to think about 2016, right, to see the difficulties of this, right? Donald Trump made a lot of Republican party elites nervous too, and they talked a lot about mobilizing against him and figuring out how to unite against some you know behind somebody, anybody, right? And they obviously did not succeed. Couldn't make it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, whether it was Rubio or Kasich or, you know, whoever, right, they, they were unable to actually do this. And yeah. it's not clear the Democrats have a better plan for this other than, you know, sort of hoping it Although they really are qualitatively different candidates. Trump oh, got sure. a lot more free advertising yep. from the media than yep. Warren is getting. Yep. Um, no, similar only in that they, mo- they make party elites nervous about their electability, about sure. what they would do if they got in there. Uh, I think that's that's a real concern. Well, we've talked about polling. We've talked about impeachment. Um, what else are you guys watching outside of uh, American po- or outside of the those two topics right now? Well, I think it's probably worth recapping um, the election that we had. Yeah. Oh, there week. was an election. That's right. Yeah. Hi to students. Say, the old. You mid-term. mean there was an election last week? The old non midterm <laughs> midterm. Not so you notice. <laughs> yeah. So um, not very much here. My my only right. the literally the only race on my ballot was an uncontested school board race, and so. You know, like condemn me if That's you will. That's exciting. But I did not go to the polls and oh, vote um, for the one <laughs> uncontested race. I decided I didn't care enough to go. Did you look to see it. how many votes that person got? I did not look okay. to see how many votes they got. But <laughs> yeah. I feel confident she got reelected. Fifty versus forty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So tell us about some of the more significant events that happened this week. Um, there were more significant races than my Yeah, so there, there's a few races. I mean, there's not that many um, races, like significant races at yep. sort of the state level that you see in these off these off years, mm-hmm. these odd years. Not even midterms, but these these odd year elections. So a few worth noting. Um, so there is the Kentucky governor's race. Um, and uh, basically, um, Republican Governor Matt Devin looks like he's lost by about uh, 5,000 votes. Um, now, he has since called for a, a re-canvas of the votes, which is supposed to take place on Thursday. Um, and But he's probably going to lose. What is a re-canvas? I was wondering I about do, that is the term that I read. I do not okay, know because it was a definitely said as if it's not a recount; it's a recanvas. But I don't know what that meant. Yeah, I wasn't sure what the distinction was. I, I'm not sure um, if if recanvas is even a technical term. Um, but that's that's the, the term that I he think used. he wants to reupholster the votes. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at any rate, they're going to look at look at the ballots and. There's a chance they could – well, he's he's said that there's some irregularities in the election, which right. seems um, false on the face of it. He's not had any evidence, so he's just being a sore loser probably. Right. So he's probably going to probably gonna lose, going to have yep. to concede at some yep. point. Um, he was – you can't really draw a whole lot of um, there's you know, implications from this particular race because no. um, he was – despite the fact he was a Republican, he was also extremely unpopular in a very Republican state. Yeah. Um, so most of the other Republicans down the ballot did very well, but he did he did poorly relative yeah. to other Republicans. So not a whole lot that you can infer um, sort of nationally from that. Um, um, the, and maybe one other thing to note there on the, the Kentucky race, too, is, 
And he was running against a guy who's a big um, family name in the state. So right. Andy Bashir, right. who's the attorney general, his father had just completed two mm-hmm. terms as governor of Kentucky mm-hmm. before Bevan. Um, this is a name people are comfortable with. He's a Democrat who has a very different brand than the National Party. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, if, if I feel confident about, you know, states in 2020, right, I can f- confidently say Donald Trump will win Kentucky in 2020. Um, so it doesn't tell us much about that. Um, but at the state level, people are willing to go with Democrats if there's a compelling reason to do so. And mm-hmm. Bevin was really unpopular. I mean, um, mm-hmm. you know, other statewide races went for Republicans, but enough people said, nope, we're not doing that. We're going to go with a different. Depending on the yeah. poll, he governor. was the 49th or 50th least popular yeah. governor. Yeah. 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 Split ticket voting is actually relatively common for governor's races, yeah. right? Because yeah. governors are are somewhat detached from national level politics, unlike mm-hmm. senators mm-hmm. and representatives to the House. And of course, governors have a track record of the things that they have done in their state. Um, and people yeah. will tend to hold them accountable for how good of a job they've done in running the state yeah. and promoting um, what's good for the state and its economy. Right. I and mean, even in our own you know, state of Minnesota, right, we haven't voted for a Democrat or for a Republican for a president since Richard Nixon in 1972. Um, but we've elected a number of you know Republicans and indeed even one rather crazy independent um, <laughs> since then, right, to our governorship, right? So we're, we're not at all adverse to going that direction. For the record, there. none of you were here when that happened. No, we, we missed I was, but... We missed the Jesse Ventura fun, right? You are welcome to those memories, <laughs> <That's right>. Sam. <laughs> I remember watching those election returns from afar and thinking... Wow, those people in Minnesota, what a what an interesting choice. They don't they care made. about anything. <laughs> <laughs> a professional wrestler. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So so there are a couple of other governor's races. Maybe we shouldn't spend much time on them. Um, but uh, Tate Reeves, the lieutenant governor of Mississippi, uh, won his race for governor. He's a Republican, so the Republicans maintain control of that governor's mansion. Yep, um, the sure. Louisiana governor's race is going to a runoff election, um, mm-hmm. which will be held November 16th. That's really typical in Louisiana, isn't it? Right, because they have a jungle yep. primary system, and basically, which everyone— that just sounds cool. I know. It does sound like, Welcome to the jungle it's primary. Kind of, it's kind of It's cool. like the Hunger Games meets, like, politics. Yeah. Electoral <laughs> politics. It's great. Last man standing. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, that's all tied up. It can go either way for the Republican or the Democrat. Um, perhaps even more interesting than any of that is what happened in Virginia. So yes. the Virginia yeah. um, state legislature, they hold their elections um, for their representatives um, in odd years for whatever right. reason. And for the first time in basically <laughs> over a generation, um, the Democrats now control the governor's mansion, which they have, but now also both the lower and the upper chambers yep. of the Virginia state legislature. Um, and so you can expect um, them to um, pass um, legislation that Democrats have yeah. been wanting to pass, gun control legislation specifically right. in the wake right. of the, the shootings mm-hmm. there. Um, but also, interestingly, you're going to see um, an opportunity for Democrats to um, potentially um, redraw the legislative district lines. Um, right. Because we have a, the 2020 census. Yeah, exactly, right. yeah. which is coming up. Um, and and that, that really matters. Oh, yeah. um, so yeah. and this yeah. is going to matter not only Virginia, but also uh, across other right. states as well. In the 2020 elections, right. Democrats can secure um, um, more control of, of the state houses. Right. You're going to see them having an opportunity to redraw mm-hmm. the state line district mm-hmm. lines in a way that will give them um, a political advantage for the next 10 years. Republicans did that back in 2010. We'll right. see if Democrats are able to secure that kind of advantage in 2020. Can we yeah. get some data, maybe not for this episode, but for a future episode on um, states likely to add or lose uh, congressional representation in the 2020 census? Um, 
Yeah, I haven't seen an update. It'd be fun, to, be fun to take a look and see like where votes might be shifting. Yeah, I mean, Minnesota might lose. Illinois will certainly lose. California might lose. Texas will gain. I think Florida might gain. Yeah. Those are the ones off the top of my head. Okay. Mm-hmm. That'd be fun to talk through. Yep. Yep. Can I talk about something completely different, guys? Oh, sure. I don't want to take a long time on this. I just want to throw something out here. <laughs> I... um. As an international relations guy, I study uh, terrorism. I teach a class on terrorism and counterterrorism. And one of the things that that, that leads me to be interested in is the psychology of of fear Mm -hmm. and the psychology Mm -hmm. of social Mm -hmm. panics. And we get to see a real-time natural experiment on social panics um, in the last month or two. And it's been over the issue of electronic cigarettes, e-cigarettes, and vaping. (laughs) And I don't take a long time on this, but I just kind of I, I want to point this out because I think that um, we saw kind of how most Americans wish uh, the government would act, but I probably mm-hmm. did it for bad reasons. And um, within a few weeks of a lot of news stories about uh, people, especially young people, especially teenagers, getting sick from e-cigarettes, from Juul. Right, uh, right. Juul is a common brand of, of, of e-cigarette and from commonly known as vaping. Um that both Democrats and Republicans and even President Trump all united around the horrors of of vaping mm-hmm. to the extent that the CEO of Juul basically said, please stop using these for, for vaping purposes. Now, they were very clear that um, the problem with this is that people are taking uh, – e-cigarettes and they're right. using them to 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 smoke marijuana and uh or other kinds of things that they're not or non-tobacco products mm-hmm. right um but all of this to say is our government sort of launched into action and there was broad consensus mm-hmm. on protecting children from from e-cigarettes specific legislation was passed right. to prevent uh um Flavored e-cigarettes, uh, certain flavors right. that were designed supposedly to appeal to children, like Fruit Loops and S'mores and cotton candy and <laughs> God knows what all else. Um, what a terrible idea, right? Mm, <laughs> s'mores flavored tobacco, but um, only not really tobacco. <laughs> that's what's weird. I mean. Well, that well, that's, that, that's right, the question: right, is what these right. things are actually being used to right. smoke? But I also think that the reason why – and, and so this, this looks like good government action. Right. Government recognizes a community health problem mm-hmm. and launches mm-hmm. in. The problem with this is the number of actual people getting sick or worse from the proper use of e-cigarettes seems to be very small. Now, that's right. not to say that tobacco is good for you. Tobacco right. definitely has long-term uh, chronic health issues right. Right. Uh, associated with it. But – this was a, this was a real social panic. This was a, a yeah. belief that, that yeah. this is like eating Tide Pods, but with a little bit of verifiable <laughs> evidence, right? That there was there were real people getting sick off yep. of the misuse yep. of these things, and I'm worried about the crafting of social policy under those kinds of circumstances, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. This is the same reason why after major terrorist attacks, it's a bad idea to legislate about terrorism, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. But here we just saw that happen with vaping. So I don't have much more to yeah, say about yeah. that other than recognize I think that happened. I'm glad we're not marketing tobacco to children. At the same time, I'm worried about how this took place. Yeah. It's very reactive. Um, Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Right. I mean, people tend to fear things that they can easily perceive and, and wrap their heads around, right? So that's why, you know, a, a mass shooting, for example, mm-hmm. or perhaps a terrorist attack, as you pointed out, mm-hmm. are things that people can ID, you know, identify as a threat. But people can't identify as a threat, um, you know, the – you know, the, the fact that they are far more likely to die in a car accident than right, to be right. the victims of a mass shooter, for example, right? right, right. Um, and it's because people have, you know, this particular 
fear mechanism yeah. that yeah. people demand action and that um, Republicans and Democrats find it in themselves to come together to <laughs> address address this fear. Right. And it's, it's intriguing, too. The whole the whole vaping thing has been interesting because on the one hand, I mean, obviously, it does lead to some it has led to some sickness issues. Right. Uh, although, as you point out, maybe because people are also misusing it. Um, but, you know, there's also this question, I mean, like one of the reasons for creating this option in the first place is that, you know, actual cigarette smoking, right, and tobacco use causes you more harms, right? right. Um, and has, you know, clear, like we know there's a very clear long-term health implications. Um, you're more likely to get any number of diseases, right, and sicknesses. Um, and we're less clear because they're newer, right, on what the implications of these kind of electronic substitutes are. Right. Um, but it's interesting then you get this like sort of huge reaction about like, oh, this is terrible. And clearly, I mean, like, it's better for you not to be necessarily taking a nicotine, right? I mean, I think that's a good takeaway for all of us. But at the same time, don't right, smoke like, kids. Um, right. But at the same time, you can look and say, like, is this such a bad thing compared to the other thing they might be doing, right? Right. I mean, if you're going to do one of those, right? Um, and so it's just interesting to see that kind of overreaction when you're like, right. well, I mean, like, again, it's better not to do any of it, but. Pick um, your poison. Yeah, exactly. If you're going to insist on doing this, right, this right. might be less terrible. Um, but you know, I was just sort of, I was, it, um, I was intrigued by the way that both parties sort of mutually jumped in to get oh, yeah. something passed yeah. here, yeah. Um, even though it's not clear that no. this is going to provide any real electoral advantage to, to either one of them per se. Well, but then it shows like, look, we can do something. Look at look the look. government, you know, doing good sure. things for the people. Yep. So. There you go. It's a yep. Yeah. Um, which is good unless the panic itself is a is a bad panic, which, yes. is, which it might be. Right, right. Um, guys, we should look uh, – maybe this is just me talking. We should look beyond our shores a little bit here. We've talked about polling. We've talked about the election. Um, I've been just talking about e-cigarettes for five minutes for some yeah. reason. Um, I, I think that's the first we, on this podcast. We've got a number of other things <laughs> happening in the world. Um, here's a short list. Uh, Brexit, Hong Kong. <laughs> Uh, Iraq, Lebanon, both having massive protests. Evo Morales resigned in Bolivia. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, we also killed the leader of ISIS. What do you guys want to talk about? Syria. You want to talk about Syria? Well, and, and Syria. I was Syria. just adding to your list. Oh, okay. So. <laughs> now let's talk about Syria. Um, I, I feel like about Brexit, like people feel about impeachment. It's like, is it still happening? It is still happening. So it will continue tiring. to happen until it's January. It's going to keep right on happening. And maybe past that oh, point, too. probably past that point. <laughs> because, like, is anyone really optimistic about this being done in January? The gift that keeps um, on giving. It is. Like, it's like, talk about poison gifts. Anyway, um, I don't really want to talk about Brexit. Uh, I will say a word about <laughs> Evo Morales. Um, I just want to complain about it. <laughs> I just want to complain about the fact that can it's we still... Say, can we say, as, you, as a news item, well, we, uh, the British are going to have a general election. Boris, I am excited about that. Boris Johnson is trying to get more support in the... The, um, in Parliament so that he can actually pass uh, a Brexit <laughs> deal because right now he doesn't have yeah. enough votes. That's and what he's he, trying and, to do. And there was an interesting development. So I guess I'll say one word about this in that the, the party that's really pushing for Brexit, which is called appropriately enough the Brexit party, um, is not directly um, – um, they just recently formed for the Why are they not called the Brexit Club? Why um, is that that would be even better because because Farage does not have your sense of humor. But okay. anyway, be a better soundtrack. Um, it, would it would be, be. much better. Um, <laughs> so they're, you, they're not running candidates. Regulate me. All right. Yeah. So they're not running candidates directly against um, conservative incumbents, and that's partly a, a tacit okay. acknowledgement that the best chance to get this done is really going to be through one of the major parties, and yep. that Boris Johnson's party is in fact their best chance. Right. So 
Um, it'll be interesting to see how that that impacts, like with them running against other parties, but not with against the conservative incumbents. Um, with Evo Morales, I mean, I think this is interesting, and it's it's kind of encouraging, actually, if you like, like constitutional government and like rule of law to be respected, <laughs> which I do, generally do. Um, so generally? Morales, yeah, well, <laughs> there's a few, almost always. Um, so Morales uh, tried to violate the constitution by running for a fourth term. He did violate the constitution by running for a fourth term. Got a kind of dubious court willing to support this. Um, and the election was very controversial and he's been forced out. And so on the one hand, I mean, he's sort of saying like, I quit to, you know, sort of reduce violence and all this. And, but, and I was forced out, but in another sense, I mean, he should have been forced out, right? Because he was not supposed to, um, run for another term. He was not constitutionally eligible. And so in that sense, I think this is encouraging to see that, you know, political pressure could be applied there, um, and could actually force a sort of, um, change in what happened. Um, we'll see where it goes from here. It could go any number of directions, not all of which are good. Um, but in, at that level, at least, it seems kind of encouraging. Yeah. I'll buy that. Um, I'll throw on the list there. Um, we need to be paying attention to uh, the protests in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has yep. uh, been going five on now for now. five months. Yeah. And they are intensified. That's yeah. mm-hmm. um, yep. In two ways. One, uh, they remain broadly attended mm-hmm. uh, despite Chinese – some Chinese attempts to crack down. Nothing, China hasn't behaved uh, well. China's behavior is increasingly heavy-handed. Yeah. Um, but also the the protesters are becoming more hardline as well, mm-hmm. and this is starting to get out of hand for the Chinese. And so, I anticipate we're going to be re- relatively quickly getting to some kind of a breaking point where either the mm-hmm. Chinese come in very heavy-handedly to try to break up uh, these ongoing protests. Or they're going to have to make some concessions to try to mollify some of these protesters. They've already made some concessions by means of mm-hmm. having Carrie Lam, who's in the governor of Hong Kong, remove uh, some of the laws that were originally mobilizing uh, the Hong Kong protesters. But the Hong Kong protesters are now um, – they're angry about the way they've been treated. They're angry mm-hmm. about the police brutality towards the protesters. There have been sh- uh, shootings against protesters that have led to fatalities. And so this is um, this is not close to ending. No, and I, Xi Jinping has really consolidated power in his person too. So that makes me mm-hmm. l- more skeptical that they're going to move toward a more compromise solution. I mean, mm-hmm. I think in many ways China's at its most like, kind of personalistic, personalistic rule uh, they've had since really Mao. I mean, mm-hmm. so yeah. I mean, I'm wondering does, like does this become like the Tiananmen of this generation? Right? Yeah. Right. I mean, I wonder like what it would take to get to mollify and assuage these protesters is yeah. probably beyond what Xi Jinping is willing to grant. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's... And if that's the case, then we're in for a rough ride as China cracks down in Hong Kong. Yeah. Because It'll they be... have a record of tra- – I mean, they, they're willing to use violence when they they need to from their perspective. Right. And if anything, under um, Xi Jinping, we've seen a return to yeah. some of these, you know, policies of social control um, and, you know, returning to some of these more sort of communistic ideals in some ways. So we, yeah. so it would be out of character for him to, um, you know, pl- completely yeah. grant all of the requests right. of, of the protesters. And I'll, I'm going to be interested to see um, what the Trump administration and potentially a future administration, if Trump right. loses, what they're going to do in response um, yeah. to um, any sort of severe crackdown on the part yep. of the um, the Chinese government. Probably a, sl- well, a slap on the hand, and then we continue trading. Yeah, I mean, so well, so maybe I could ask, point, like, ask you, Chris, like, yeah. what what would what would 
be a fruitful course of action? What what constraints are on the U.S. Um, and the, the presidential administration in general about what the U.S. could do to address the situation? Well, unfortunately, we've kind of already shot some of our arrows in this regard because the Trump administration has launched um, a couple thousand uh, tariffs. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not being hyperbolic. The, the tariffs have impinged on a, about a thousand, a couple thousand different industries. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. We've, we're really tied pretty deeply into those tariffs. And now um, there is internal division inside the White House uh, with, with a lot more sort of traditional Republicans, free trade oriented Republicans, trying to dig the United States out of this. Right. Donald Trump is by no means a traditional Republican in terms no, of free trade. No, he's, a, no. he's a national populist. And so he is interested in sort of throwing up trade barriers, mm-hmm. which is not mm-hmm. classic Republican policy. It's, it's one way that Trump is actually a lot closer to Bernie Sanders than he yeah. would be to yeah. Ted Cruz. Or mm-hmm. something like that. Right. They're popu- They're both populist. Yeah. Right. So we, in, a, in a different world, we could have imagined the United States using economic leverage to try <laughs> to uh, get right. China to behave nicely in Hong Kong. But that is really largely gone now. We're, we're really trying to get China to come back to the negotiating table to resolve this, these trade disputes. Mm-hmm. It is possible I, we could imagine that the United that China might – say the opposite, which is we will resolve these trade issues with you if you just quietly ignore Hong Kong. And Mm, because the mm, United States at this mm. point really hasn't taken a strong, loud international stand on human rights abuses in Hong Kong, despite the fact that Hong Kong is the most freely liberal democratic part of China with its own home rule. And and that could really go away. And so I'm not sure the United States has a lot of cards to play here unless we really decide to saber rattle. And we would probably do that through proxies in the region. How effective would that be? Um, I'm not sure that it would be effective in the short term. Because the the Chinese wouldn't take it seriously. I don't think so. I don't think so either. I think that the idea you suggested, Chris, is probably the most interesting one is – you know, that, that China agrees to like, okay, we will make these concessions, but you will keep your mouth shut or largely shut when we do what we need to do right. um, in Hong Kong. And I think that that feels like the kind of deal that the Trump White House might buy. Absolutely, because Trump is, is um, relatively cares. isolationist yep. and yep. would rather get a deal done for Americans than stand up for any yep. kind of potential right. sovereignty issues in Hong right. Kong. Yep. Right. One last issue, guys. I think we need to recognize that we, um, the United States, acting uh, with using Army Special Forces, Mm -hmm. uh, successfully um, uh, um, encountered and killed uh, Abu Bakr Mm -hmm. al-Baghdadi, the one-time caliph of ISIS. Uh, ISIS's territory has largely been surrendered to Syrian forces Mm -hmm. and to Iraqi forces. But uh, killing Baghdadi is significant. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Does this play in uh, U.S. domestic politics? Nope. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Moving on. Moving on. Uh, obviously, this I just is think a- about the tweet with the dog. That's every time this comes up, I just think about the tweet with that. You want to explain that? The hero, the hero dog that Trump tweeted the picture of the, the dog who was involved in and was slightly injured in killing Baghdadi. Um, and they declassified the picture of the dog, but not the dog's name. Yep. Um, and I just. I think the dog's yeah. name has since become declassified. Wow. I'm um, so excited. But. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to say that for sure. I don't want to mis- misidentify That's a dog. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is um, Donald Trump is very proud of being able to take credit for yes. the the death of Baghdadi. 
Um, he Donald Trump really does compare himself quite a bit to Barack Obama, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. this is his way of kind of matching yeah. Barack Obama. Obama was in pre- was president when Bin Laden was taken mm-hmm. out, and now um, Trump gets to take out Baghdadi. Mm-hmm. So this is this is something I anticipate he will mention regularly on yep. the campaign trail, even if this isn't the kind of thing that that woos voters. Yeah. I yeah, I mean, I think you it's know, personally important to him. Obama got a bit of a right. bump in the polls. Yeah. Um, it from, was short lived, though. Yeah, it was short lived. Yeah. Those things dissipate; they revert to the mean. Right. Um, and and Bin Laden is a, f- I mean, it's a household name. Right. Baghdadi is not. Baghdadi is yeah. not. Yeah, it's just not the same. I mean, so Trump can take a you know as many victory laps as he wants, but right, it's it's not really going to sway most people. Yeah, so. agreed. Can I put a a plug in for bookish at Bethel here, Sam? Please do. Oh, sure. All right. So one of the things that our colleagues over at Bookish at Bethel like to ask is, what's on your nightstand, uh, book-wise? I don't know if you keep your glasses or a cup of water there because you enjoy spilling something in the middle of the night. Um, but uh, do you, I leave that to my children. <laughs> yeah. um, what are, uh, what's something you're reading right now for, for pleasure um, or for relaxation or just for edification uh, that you might want to recommend to people um, that are listening to this? So I just finished reading. This is actually not really for pleasure exactly, but it's for um, Senior Sam, but I enjoyed it. Um, a Sinclair Lewis novel called It Can't Happen Oh, Here. that's a good one. Um, and so I'd never read this before. I'd never read any Sinclair Lewis, but my senior seminar class chose this um, book. And it's basically about a 1936 um, fascist win through the electoral process in America in which a a fascist Democratic candidate, which is sort of an odd combo, but um, wins the election over FDR and the Republican um, and then proceeds to take America down this sort of pretty hardcore fascist path hmm. um, and all sorts of bad things ensue, as you might imagine. imagine. Um, so it was intriguing. It was it, it was disturbing, obviously, um, but also, you know, kind of like I enjoyed Lewis's writing. I mean, he definitely has some mm-hmm. funny moments where he's, you know, he has a, a nice way of kind of turning the phrase. And so that was... Yeah, and I, let's I, not forget he's a Minnesota. He is a Minnesota and a Nobel Prize winner. Yep, right. yep, so. indeed, indeed. As yeah. as the only native Minnesotan Sox in the room, center, right? we I, have to point out center. whenever a Minnesotan yeah. does something. Yep. So, yep, he is. Nice. And and Fort Snelling has a prominent role late in the book. Um, because <laughs> That's actually right. a key mo- place where they the resistance is rallying, and so That's I right. enjoyed that. I was like, hey, I've been there. Um, so, <laughs> so that was fun. Sam, what's on your nightstand? Uh, well, since this is a bookish at Bethel tie, I'm going to actually make a tweet victory tie to your victory. Oh which is this weekend I just read Tina Fey's Bossy Pants. And? And we have a um, a surprise at some point in the next calendar year, a surprise um, tweet victory book club on Bossy Pants coming. Is so Tina Fey going to be a guest? We're efforting Tina Fey uh, as a guest <laughs> on that. So it's Annie Berglund's favorite book. So you should listen to Tweet Victory and you can learn more about why I read Bossy Pants this weekend. I wow. loved it. I can't wait to read it again nice <laughs> matt what's on your book stand mine is like so dusty dry by comparison ooh, it's just not even gonna be fun so i'm reading a book by ff bruce um ooh, that's good a scholar um mm-hmm. and this particular um book is called the canon of scripture so mm-hmm. it sort of traces right. the development of the old testament new testament nice. um uh, canons of scripture um and at what point the canons were considered to be sort of formed or developed right. um, mm-hmm. and and when you know certain let's say you know prominent christian church 
church fathers mm-hmm. um, when they wrote, seeing how they use particular scripture, what they considered to be canonical, what was not mm-hmm. canonical, what was heretical, what wasn't, mm-hmm. um, and seeing those developments and those dialogues mm-hmm. um, over the centuries. So nice. I'm picking my th- way through it. It's not something that I have any sort of prior background knowledge in, mm-hmm. but it's been it's been interesting. Good. Dr. Yeah. Moore, what's on your... Uh... Um, this is going to be really, uh, really uh, time frame appropriate. But with Halloween around the corner, I decided to reread Dracula. Halloween around the corner? <laughs> what, what, no, like, I mean, oh, okay. around the so previous. When I corner. realized that Halloween was coming, <laughs> okay. I decided to start reading Dracula. I didn't okay. finish it in time for Halloween. I was going to say, I thought you were preparing for Halloween 2020. <laughs> no, 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 which so would I be start- believable from him. Like, yes, starting. He's the guy who showed up in a plant suit. So uh, no, well, well, we'll get to that later. <laughs> did you, did you finish it? That's what I'm saying. Like okay. I, I'm still in the last, still like I'm in the last fifth of the of Dracula. It's real good, isn't it? Yeah, it's real good. Yeah, I, I was, forgot how good it was. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm reading mm. through Dracula on my nightstand right now. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. Nice. So, all right, guys, we got to head out of here. But um, thanks for listening. You can always get in touch with us at electionshocktherapy at gmail You can also email us about any of the podcasts on this channel at channel thirty nine hundred at gmail uh, Sam, any other announcements? Anything else you want to plug? Uh, like I said, you should be listening. You should subscribe to the channel. We have really good stuff coming. Uh, next week we have, uh, I'm do- actually doing, I think is what is our first channel 3900 podcast. Nice. Um, I'm going to be interviewing, uh, some folks at the Bethel Clarion about a podcast project we've been working on called life is. Mm-hmm. So it's our, it's our crossover episode to try to get some folks to go listen to that. So, cool. so, if, so in preparation for that, go to your podcast, uh, app, search for life is, uh, Bethel Clarion. I think you mm-hmm. need both because Life Is is a pretty generic title. Uh, and give it a listen because we're going to be talking with Zach and Callie and Scott Winter. So Nice. Well, thanks, guys. On behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, you've been listening to Election Shock Therapy. Uh, we'll be back in your feed with something real fun real soon. Um, um, and uh, In the meantime, in the meantime, go Royals. Go Royals. Go Royals.